Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. The financial crisis of 2008 was tough for the country. But the real impact will hit colleges in about 2026. It turns out those fiscal anxieties coincided with a dramatic birth dearth, a reduction in the number of children born, meaning the number of kids that'll hit traditional college age will drop about 15% by around 2026. And that means a crisis for colleges, unless they start planning now. That's the argument of Nathan Graw, an economics professor at Carleton College. He's author of a new book with a very straightforward title, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. This week, I sat down with Graw, who described how this slow-moving storm raises existential questions for higher education. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, I'm here with Nathan Graw, professor of economics at Carleton College and author of the recent book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. So I wanted to start out just by helping our listeners who may not be demographers or digging into these stats. Why is it important for education leaders to pay attention to demographics? I think all of us, one way or another, are dependent on demand. If we're at a state institution, we might have a funding formula that's related to numbers of students. If we're at a private institution, uh, we are more or less tuition dependent. And if we have fewer students, we've, we've got some difficulties to deal with. So there's just the raw numbers. And then there's the composition that uh, students from different backgrounds have different needs, different tastes. And if we are going to be serving our missions to its fullest, we need to be aware of what our students' backgrounds are going to look like. And to anticipate as much as we can. We're lucky in higher education that we can see some of these trends in the demand for our product 18 years in advance because of the, the lead time. Um, we, we should take advantage of that and think about what will education look like in 10 years and how can we make plans today that put us in the best position even if we can't perhaps make uh, the changes entirely right now. We can put ourselves in a position to be responsive to that demand when it comes. Okay, you found um, in your analysis what you describe as birth dearth. Um, And I guess this happened around the the time of the financial crisis. Could you talk a little bit about that? So when the economy tanked in 2008, predictably, young people decided it wasn't the best time perhaps to have kids. A little bit less predictably, when the economy recovered, we didn't see a recovery in the total fertility rate. So between 2008 and 2010, the total fertility rate fell by about 10%. And then since then, it's drifted down even further. So as a result, we're missing at this point 13% of the birth cohorts, and that's been persistent now for the better part of a decade. Hmm. So if we fast forward from 2008, 18 years, and we see the front end of when those kids would have been graduating from high school and become demanders in the higher education market, we're all of a sudden just missing a large number of kids. And then the next interesting question is, but who isn't having kids? And are these the kids who are most likely to attend college, least likely to attend college? What can we do to, to get better, uh, a better nuanced picture of what that demand will look like? But the bottom line remains that we've, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of kids. So this is going to matter. It will matter. And I think 
Um, my question when I saw this data for the first time was, how much is it going to matter for me? And I think the answer is it's going to matter for all of us. Um, some institutions, uh, I expect, will actually see an increase in demand despite the birth dearth because of the changing composition in the U.S. population in particular parents are increasingly educated and they send their kids to uh, more selective institutions. So I think more selective institutions may see demand for their product go up. Places like Carleton, exactly. like we're seeing now. So I can breathe a sigh of relief, but it's not quite that simple because places not like Carleton are going to see a drop that's much bigger than the increase at the top end. So what does that mean for a place like Carleton? I expect it's going to mean that there are a bunch of hungry market participants who are going to change how they interact with students. They're going to compete differently with financial aid. They're going to uh, change their program offerings. And so I think even the elites where we might expect, if nothing changed, to see an increase in enrollment, I think they need to be aware that change is coming and they too need to be agile and responsive to the world around them. Yeah, we've heard we've heard some dire predictions um that have grabbed some headlines recently, you know, about, or in the past 10 years, about this demographic wave could be really disruptive. Um, and, and also the rise of some online options and everything. Clayton Christensen, who's kind of this disruptive innovation guy, has famously said that in um, that as many as half of U.S. colleges could close or go bankrupt in 10 or 15 years. I mean, what do you think of predictions like that? I mean, is that kind of thing possible with the kind of demographics you're seeing? That's not going to be driven by the demographics. I think he's focusing more on how technology might change the way we do higher ed. And to be fair, there's some evidence for some uh, significant changes going on. Some institutions are offering three-year degrees, for instance. Um, though I've noticed in those stories that while they offer them, they're not highly subscribed by students. And I wonder, hmm. is there really a demand for that? Hmm. Um, but the demographics alone aren't going to drive that. They might drive uh, a decrease, however, in the demand for two-year and regional four-year institutions in the Northeast by 20 plus percent. And so if you're a two-year college in the Northeast or you're a four-year college that serves people who live within 100 miles of your institution, that's going to be pretty disruptive. I don't know that it's going to mean that we're going to lose 50% of institutions. That might be overstating it. And I would also note that the doom and gloom take on the demographics is not entirely misplaced, but I think that we would do better to focus on what we can do to change. We control a lot about what's about to happen. We can choose to ignore the problem entirely and wake up in 2027 with dramatically, rapidly reducing class sizes. And that will be probably calamitous for a lot of institutions. Or we can look at it right now, see what's coming on the horizon, and we can choose to make investments that maybe are a little bit uh, more flexible, a little bit less set in stone, so that when we have a contraction, we can contract in ways that make more sense rather than less sense, so that the institutions continue to serve their their mission. We've, we've been through demographic change in the past. Um, I think this is going to be a more dramatic and sudden demographic change than some in the past, and we've already pulled some levers. So, for instance, in the 70s and 80s, people talked about the effect of a birth dearth, and we increased admission rates for women, and we reached out to international students, and we expanded into non-traditional markets. And then we got lucky because the returns to college tripled, um, the return to college relative to high school, and everybody wanted to get a college degree. I don't know that, A, we can pull the lever on uh, admitting women again. I think that lever's been well pulled. Um, I'm skeptical that there are that many more non-traditional students. 25% of enrollments today are non-traditional students. Can we really admit that many more? And how many of them were driven by the returns to college education spiking like it did? International students is a place we might go, but there are political 
challenges to that. So it's not that we have an infinite number of possible ways forward, but these projections are not written in stone. This is what will happen if we just keep doing the same old, same old. And I'm hopeful that if we look forward 10 years at the data, we won't necessarily see this. We'll see colleges and universities changing the way that they recruit. We'll see colleges and universities that try to double down on their commitment to their mission so that they make a better value proposition and they become a more valued uh, investment for students so that my projections don't come to pass. But I think the bottom line is now is the time to be making plans to set us up for success despite the challenges that lie ahead. Yeah, I did I, some of the, the, especially near the beginning of the book, it's almost like, uh-oh, is this a doom and gloom thing? But you're not. Yeah, I think you mentioned some other things that colleges can do. I mean, there's almost, I think you believe, I, I believe you mentioned in here that there's almost some things that might even out a little bit, like there's been such a rise of adjuncts, but exactly. that could be something that shrinks relative to, that could shrink again, um, that reliance on adjunct a little bit if, you know. There's right. a, the reduction. And if I'm at an institution that has a large number of adjuncts, um, they're probably uh, recurring adjuncts. They're committed to the institution, committed to the community. That sort of restructuring will certainly be painful, and I don't mean to minimize sure. that. No, understood. Same here. On yeah. the other hand, if we could come out the other end with a more professionalized faculty that had a more long-term commitment from the institution so right. that the faculty could make that commitment, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Similarly, we've seen decreases in allocations to uh, public institutions, um, certainly since the financial crisis, but in general, it's, it's been a, a long trend of pulling back from public support. With decreasing numbers of students, we could imagine legislators experiencing a windfall of not having to spend quite as much on higher education, but at the same time increasing the per-pupil expenditure. So again, I don't want to minimize the disruptiveness of the reduced total allocation, but if we came out the tail end of it, having argued effectively for an increase in per-pupil expenditure that reversed some of the trend of the last 10 to 20 years, that would be a very nice um, silver lining in, in what is admittedly a challenging situation. You also mentioned some other things, strategies that colleges could do to respond to this. Um, and I think one of them was technology, with, but, but you mentioned it's not really a silver bullet or hasn't proven right. to be that. Well, I think technology clearly has changed the way we provide higher education. Hmm. Uh, we see it maybe most clearly in some of the public institutions which have um, adopted online courses um, in total. But even at elite, high-touch places like Carleton, we use technology all the time to mm. change the way that we are more effectively reaching students. Um, ultimately, it's obviously about student learning and how can we facilitate better uh, student learning. I think this will be potentially an area where people continue to experiment. Certainly, we're going to have some incentives to experiment. If you're a regional institution in a market that is going nowhere but down, you may view yourself is needing to tap into additional markets. You may see the choice as either we're going to have serious retrenchment or we're going to find a new market. And if you look around geographically in your immediate surroundings and you don't see an obvious place to go for a new market, you may be able to identify a more distant geographical market that nevertheless is in some other sense close to you. Mm -hmm. There are needs of students who are 300 miles away and technology does allow us to reach such students in ways that we couldn't have in the past. I see also two-year colleges already finding ways to use technology to decrease the synchronicity challenges of teaching, especially for students who have kids or students who have jobs. 
Uh, maybe the, the, guys, the sometimes hassle of getting campus, that kind of thing, absolutely. making the schedule more flexible. So maybe you meet as a class in a, in a traditional setting one day a week, and then you have an online chat discussion where you don't necessarily have to be online at the same time as all your peers, but you're checking in periodically and you can engage in the discussion in a meaningful way. So I, I think there will be experiments where institutions view technology as uh, their best play to adapt to this changing environment. Um, or at least to, to preserve some chance that they won't have to experience retrenchment to the same degree. Yeah, and I think if I understood it correctly, you sort of mentioned that um, it, it, nothing is going to come fast enough to really totally answer that by itself in technology, though, right? I don't think so. Because we're talking about, you know, the clock is ticking exactly. on your projection. So I want to be cautious, recognizing that I think it was 2008 or 2009 that the smartphones came out. Yeah. And now smartphones are everywhere, doing everything. So... Um, technology recently <laughs> has proven to be very disruptive and very capable of change. So maybe I'll be surprised. But when we look at the, the MOOCs and how that all played out... Right, these free online courses that were all the rage a few absolutely. years ago. Yeah. Um, we, we had a lot of people sign up. Not many people completed them. We ran into practical challenges, which I'm not sure have been completely overcome with how do I know who actually sat the exam. Right. And while we can imagine continuing to press into that, it's not clear to me that it's, it's going to be as fundamentally uh, earth-shattering as maybe some of the proponents thought. And yes, as you said, the time is ticking. So we have to decide now whether or not we make that bet on technology. And some institutions will. Um, and for all I know, maybe, they'll, maybe they will succeed. But we still have the bottom line problem of... If there are going to be, in some areas of the country, 20 or 30% fewer students available, if I succeed in a way that's above average, then somebody else is failing in a way that is above average. Um, there's a zero-sum game here, but for the possibility that I might actually tap into a currently unserved market. And so we have to ask ourselves honestly, do we think that the, the technology solutions are just going to shift the students around, in which case they're going to be winners and losers, or... Can it actually be a game changer and open up new markets? And if so, to what degree? Adding a few additional students here or there is not nearly enough in the face of a 30% decrease in the number of students available in some markets. So um, I, think, I think people should look at technology. I think people should experiment. People should be thinking about how technology can allow them to be more adaptable. But they shouldn't be deceiving themselves into thinking that that's likely to solve all their problems. Yeah. I, I wonder as well, this is kind of a hard one. I'm probably not asking it the best, but it, it felt like there's something at stake in what you're arguing about the American dream and equality, right? And equal opportunity to higher ed. Because there is a sense that some of these high-income students are cross-subsidizing low-income students, right? I mean, it seems like that's part yeah. of what how higher ed works. And so if there's a decrease... I don't know, it feels like if the pool gets smaller, are you worried at all that this could kind of disrupt the system of trying to, especially at a time of lower state funding, you know, help new students and, and, and an equal, a really, you know, kind of equal opportunity to college um, as much as that's possible? Will, will, will this threaten that potentially, the way things are going? I think it could threaten it. I, I would push back a little bit on the notion that the high-income folks are cross-subsidizing the low. Even at Carleton, the high-income students pay less than the average cost uh, because our endowment mm. provides the difference. And if you go to a state institution and you're a high-income student, well, the state subsidy is uh, dramatically reducing your cost relative to average cost. And so, you know, sometimes at Carleton, we 
not entirely jokingly say every single student here is a financial aid student. It's just some of them are aware of it and some of them aren't. Um, but I think the bigger point is you're right. We're going to have fewer resources. And teaching students whose families can bring very little to the table, often less than than the marginal cost, much less the average cost of education, it is just an expensive proposition. And places like Carleton and all sorts of institutions that are striving to serve a more diverse student body face trade-offs of do we take this low socioeconomic student knowing that it might mean that we have to give up on these um, two middle-income students in order to make the, the books balance. And that's just going to get a little bit tougher as students' numbers decline and some institutions become increasingly aware of just making a class, much less these distributional things. Um, I think there are going to be some interesting ways that especially the second tier of colleges interact with the first tier. As I said, I think that because of rising parent education, we're going to see more students who have the markers of an elite education. And and it's not clear to me that the number of seats at those institutions is going to grow to hmm. meet the demand. Yale is recently increasing the number of its undergraduate seats, but I, I don't know that we're going to necessarily see that entirely keep pace, which means some students who have the markers of elite attendance today are available for the second tier. And then we can think about, well, who is falling to that second tier? Um, insofar as elite institutions have favored reaching out to diversity and socioeconomic diversity, interestingly, it means the second tier students may be easier to find in a full pay capacity because maybe some of the institutions that are intentionally trying to seek out low-income students will pass on some high-income students, and that might have, in, in some um, nice indirect way, uh, a sense of spreading the wealth, that the endowments at the top allow them to pursue these really expensive students and leave behind some full-pay students instead who then go to uh, strong second-tier institutions and bring with it a full-pay uh, check. Now, how did you get into this work? I'm curious. <laughs> Just like any faculty member would, I went to a, uh, a kickoff for our strategic planning process a few years back, and the president had arranged for some speakers to present data on Carleton, data on higher education, and I saw the witchy map that is featured in uh, media outlets about once a year these days, and I saw this gaping, bleeding red northeast quadrant of the country and all this growth in the southwest, and my first thought was, wow, this looks really, really bad, and my second thought was, I wonder if this has anything to do with us, because we're just a niche market within the bigger scheme of things, in which he, of course, is predicting high school graduates. Not all of them go to college, and certainly even fewer go to a four-year college, fewer still go to a college like mine. And so I started thinking, well, how can we do something better than just these headcounts and try to wait for the probability of attendance? And in so doing, then get different forecasts for a two-year college as opposed to an Ivy, where currently the headcount data... Um, was only giving sort of one forecast for everybody, which meant it was really a forecast for nobody. Hmm. And so you developed your own index exactly. in this book about trying to predict exactly. that. Huh. Um, so going to a seminar and hearing that and wondering That's right. what it Getting all means. Getting scared. <laughs> Getting scared. And, you know, how are you, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but, but how are you feeling now on, you know, after you've kind of answered that question you had about what was coming well, I've been encouraged by the response to the book and that people do seem to be focusing on this demographic change in a way that I wasn't sure I was seeing in the past. The media has not missed this story. Uh, the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed have been routinely covering the witchy data as it comes out and saying, wow, this looks really scary. Sure. This um, wave change of absolutely. demographics has been on the radar a little bit. Yeah. 
And I would like to think that it was just because we didn't have nuanced forecasts that administrators weren't paying attention. I'm not honestly sure that that's entirely it. The response to the book has often focused on just the raw demographic information. Uh, so it might just be an auspicious time to begin these conversations. Maybe it has to do with the horizon that administrators plan on, and maybe 2026 is now within their horizon of planning, and so they're paying more attention. But it has been heartening, however it came to be, to see institutions engage this question, because I really do think American higher education is a jewel. We are serving an important mission. We are a model for the rest of the world. And this kind of change could be very, very disruptive if we just blindly go ahead. If we plan, um, I remain confident in our higher education institutions that they're going to find ways to preserve their future. Some ways might be painful, but at least in ways that allow those institutions or many of them to continue on in the future. So it's been encouraging to see uh, the response, just that people are paying attention, that people are asking questions, that people are thinking outside the box of, well, how could we operate differently in a way that might better serve students so that we can address these problems for ourselves. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it may just be close enough now that this doesn't feel... Because people have been talking about this for a little while, and it's Absolutely. more like um, it's close enough now that maybe you could do something about it in a way that you'll see the results or you'll see... Exactly, and it, it might be the better part of caution to say, let's not make changes until we get a little bit closer. Um, as we saw in the 70s and 80s, other changes can mitigate what we think might be coming down the pike. And so waiting until we get a little bit closer might be sound policy. Um, and yet we're about a decade out from when things get really tough and people are engaging in the conversation. So it seems like they, they did engage it in time to make meaningful changes before the, the student numbers uh, shift dramatically. All right. Well, I'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for talking with me. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge on Air podcast. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you haven't already, please subscribe on whatever app you use. And you can support the show by taking a minute to give us a rating. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.